0: Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices, about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are, again, sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review and sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support. And enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi, and I know you've all been waiting with breathless anticipation for that huge announcement. Who has won the prize from last month's competition? Remember, all you had to do was go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes and leave a review to be entered into the draw to win a DVD copy of last month's film. That was 1937's Saturday Night Review. Well, I have the names in a hat in front of me. It's actually a mug. And without further ado, the winner is match me sydney that's match me sydney or one word congratulations to you match me sydney or match me or sydney so if you dm me on twitter that's at Bytes soho or email me at sohobitespodcast at gmail.com with your actual name and postal address i'll pop it in the post and jolly well done to you Now, researching this episode has led me down a long and winding path of discovery into the lives of two people about whom I didn't previously know much about. In fact, in the case of one of them, I hadn't even heard of him. A bit later, I'll be meeting up with Anna Kale. Anna is the writer of a new biography of Diana Dawes, an actress whose larger-than-life public image was matched only by her larger-than-life life. It will be easy, I thought, to tie this in with one of the many Soho films in which Diana must have appeared, but I soon realised that, surprisingly, she did hardly any Soho films at all. She often played bad girls from the wrong side of the tracks, good time girls and working girls, but very rarely were these films set in Soho. In the end, we opted for Value for Money from 1955, starring Dinah Doors and John Gregson, which is a very unusual Soho film in that it's mostly set in Yorkshire. Buy it! Hear my conversation with Anna and my weak justification for classifying value for money as a Soho film in the second half of the show. And it was whilst reading Anna's book about Diana that I came across a few mentions of one of her early boyfriends, one who became a lifelong friend of hers, a fellow called Michael Caborn Waterfield. I confess I hadn't heard of Michael Caborn Waterfield, but older listeners may have done, as he regularly featured in gossip columns in the 60s and 70s and was known, partly thanks to Diana Dawes, as Dandy Kim. He died in 2016 at the age of 86 and is most well known today for founding the Ann Summers chain of sex shops. In fact, in Wikipedia, that's the only thing it says about him. But there was so much more to his extremely eventful life than that. I managed to track down Dandy Kim's friend and biographer, Nigel Hamilton Walker, and persuaded him to come on the show. I would be hearing from him about his friend's totally bonkers life in just a few moments.
1: Dandy, dandy, where you gonna go now, who you gonna run to, all your little life, you're chasing all the girls, they can't resist your smile, oh-oh. <laughs> Long
0: Attempting to squeeze the life of Michael K. Bourne Waterfield slash Dandy Kim into a short item on a podcast is an impossible task. This was a man who lived a long, extraordinary life, rubbing shoulders with some of the most famous and notorious people of the 20th century. He was from a fairly prosperous background and was expelled from his private school, Cranley, in 1946 and was described by the then headmaster, the Reverend David Loveday, as a sinister and untrustworthy child. Not the language you'd expect to hear from a man of the cloth. Kim went on to become a kind of modern-day Harry Flashman, finding himself at the centre of many of the most significant events of the 20th century. His adventures brought him into contact with, and not always in the good books of, royalty, Hollywood studio bosses, gangsters, fraudsters, a certain well-known society osteopath, dictators, heiresses and film stars, all of which made him fair fodder for the gothic columnists on both sides of the Atlantic. If you Google Michael Born Waterfield, you'll read mainly about him starting Ann Summers, which he founded in 1970, but he'd achieved notoriety well before that. To find out more about his earlier schemes, I would urge you to read the biography of Dandy Kim, written by my guest, Nigel Hamilton Walker, link in the show notes at sohobitespodcast.com, There are many adventures featured in the book that we were unable to talk about in the programme because this podcast is not three days long. These include, for example, Kim's inadvertent role in the rise of Fulgencio Batista to power in pre-revolutionary Cuba and his uncomfortable association with the American mobster, Mayor Lansky. There's the story of a robbery at the holiday home of movie mogul Sam Warner on the French Riviera, which resulted in Kim being handed a jail sentence a jail sentence which was then mysteriously cut short, perhaps because of the explosive contents of a dossier that was stolen pertaining to the British monarchy. He once found himself negotiating with Imelda Marcos about bringing to Filipino TV screens the Miss Topless Universe competition, a scheme that Kim had cooked up with Lord Litchfield. Spoiler alert, it never got off the ground. In fact, there were many business schemes along the way that spectacularly failed, but some that made him a lot of money, all of which got spent. Oh, and there were many, many women. Oh, and just to be clear, when I say there were many, many women, what I mean by that is that he had sexual intercourse with many, men. You get the picture. My guest, Nigel Hamilton-Walker, first met Kim in 1965, and they later became close friends, and they remained so until Kim's death in 2016. We spoke online, and I began by asking Nigel when and how Dandy Kim had launched himself onto an unsuspecting London.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's around the late 40s, early 50s, uh, Dom. He had a thing for horse riding, he had a thing for sex. School wasn't very good for him. He'd lost his father and he'd been sent down to Cranley, very, very strict rules, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Unhappy there, caused chaos there, was always in trouble. And he saved enough money up to get a train to London. Came up, lost his virginity. He must have been about 14, 15. Loved the idea of London. But his main other interest was horses. Around Hyde Park Corner, there used to be Grosvenor Mews, full of all the original stables, which all the classic car dealers took over back in the sort of 60s and 70s. There was a woman who ran a stables there who almost all looked after him. So he was trying to spend as much time as he could, trying to enjoy the finer things of life, even then. And he met by total chance Anthony Newley. And they they, they were both like 15 years of age. And they set a friendship up. They kept drinking together. And they were very, very different backgrounds because Newley was very much the Cockney East End boy. And he was very much the world-traveled, suave, sophisticated, old Etonian voice. But they became great, great friends. That's really what started his first business with the uh, post war premium nylon stockings because he met a guy called Bobby McHugh with Newley in the Astor Club one night, all of about 16, 17 years of age. And that's really what started. You know, it's applicable to you because his main income then was literally walking around Soho and Theatre Land at night. <laughs> flogging off these, these, these premium stockings, which you couldn't buy after, you know, post-war rationing. And again, through that, he met Billy Hill. He ran that business. He was starting out as well, albeit a lot older than Kim. And that's how, with Newley, he met Diana Dawes because Newley was going to the pub, asked him to go for a drink on New Year's Eve. Diana Dawes was, was there. As, um, that's how those two got together originally.
0: So the, the thing with Billy Hill who was a, a notorious gangster, I mean, the, the, the yeah. king of Soho at that stage, was he not stepping on Billy Hill's toes with this business of flogging nylon? No,
1: because Bobby McHugh worked for, for Billy Hill. Those were really his runners around the town, so he certainly wasn't stepping on his toes because the stock was actually coming from Billy Hill via Bobby McHugh. So all he had to do was go out and sell it, take a cut for himself and return the money. They were getting a living out of that.
0: And where did he live at this time, Kim?
1: He was living in Maida Vale from memory for a while. When he moved in with Dawes, they took a flat near uh, the Albany in St. James's. There was always a shortage of money because you gave them any of that mob, in our terms today, a grand, they go and spend two. It was, yeah. They were crazy. <laughs> he, was, he was really not doing that well. He was very, very much the young errand boy. Diana Dawes had got all sorts of wonderful contracts, starting with rank and God knows what else. Is this, you know, Britain's answer to almost Brigitte Bardot and, and Marilyn Monroe. And he was a bit out of his depth, I think, to start with there. And then a guy called Hamilton, um, strangely the same name as mine, came along, made a great big play for him. He was a horrible man. He used to beat her up, heavy drinking sessions, all the rest of it. But again, though, Kim stayed, they became more soulmates. They'd discuss anything together.
0: So the Stockings business, that was just the first of his hundreds of business ventures that he had throughout his life. Yes. Some of them were more legitimate than others. Yes. <laughs> and he's most well known for setting up Ann Summers, which we'll get onto. but he did, before that, he published a sex manual, which must have been one of the very first sex manuals. He
1: wasn't only the first, he also, it was really what turned him on to create Ann Summers because he couldn't believe his own success. Because he had this criminal record, which he had, and everybody in that era, we're going back many years ago, knew about the robbery on the Riviera. You can still find out about it today if you dig hard enough. And basically, he wrote it under the name of Terence Hendrickson, so no one would know it was him. Spoke to a few publishers, and he got nowhere. So he started mail order. Well, he'd only printed about two or 300 copies, and it was all done, do you know London very well? Do you know Glebe Places, where all the studios are, of Roland Gardens? Yeah. He'd got a, a flat there, and he was doing it out of there, just mail order. And the checks, it was, it was a joke, the checks were just coming in through the letterbox and on the hall floor for however much the book was. And he was just printing every week. He picked up genuinely in those days, think of it in today's money, a quarter of a million pounds. It was. I have seen it. It was the crudest looking book and cover you've ever seen.
0: I've seen it's available to buy on um, eBay still. Is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Is it? yeah. Well, he was, after that, he was a firm believer in mail order, hence the Ann Summers situation.
0: Okay, so let's move on to Anne Summers, because Anne Summers, I think most people know that Anne Summers wasn't the person who set up the shop, and that was a kind of a, a made-up name, but it wasn't actually a made-up no, name. It it was, it was, no, it wasn't. But she no, was no, somebody no, no, no. who worked for the company.
1: Her real name was Anise.
0: Anise Summers.
1: Yes, and she worked down in Kent. She was a... A marriage destroyer, really. Um, she took a job with my father. And my father had opened some garages down in Kent. They ended up having a big affair. It cost my parents' marriage, to tell you the truth. She really wanted to get into the centre of London and what have you. She was definitely having a few affairs at the same time. And she rented a farm near Plaxtile, which is a tiny little village down in Kent three fellas found out they were all paying the rent for the same property. (laughs) Uh, You see one on Monday, one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday. But one of them was Kim. Kim then took her on full time and started the the company, designed the the Apple brand, which is the same sign that Apple today uses. The Apple, Eve's Apple with a bit bit bitten out of it. And, he didn't know what to call it and he didn't want his name on it or again he didn't want his name on anything because of the past really
0: he was already notorious wasn't he by this stage in some oh yeah some around circles. London
1: especially so he took a house again same as the, the Hendrickson book he went to Germany he went to Thailand he got manufacturing underway he stole the designs frankly from that old lady in who was a sex therapist if you like and she did it under sexual um, remedies but in fact they were sex toys he copied her stock had it made in um, the far east brought it back here it was all sent to a house in on putney hill and he called he didn't like the name of niece so he called it Anne summers it's as simple as that they did it together. My ex-wife, funnily enough, worked for him for a while there as well. So he had the two girls up there, him up there overseeing it, going to the bank each day in the roles. And they were doing great, great business. It, 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 it was working in every sense of the word until he decided he wanted to create a London shop and a showroom. He was tempting fate, really. They did a whole thing. The television companies were there and all the rest of it. And the shop duly opened. In fact, I think, you again, in the book, you've seen pictures of the shop opening. Yeah. yeah obviously, the overheads ran up. It was very different to mail order. The overheads were running up. And she was getting ideas, visions of grandeur. And I remember all this, actually, because it was in years now, about 1970. Um, she was made an approach by the news of the world to tell the story. And she had to play to it. And the story was well and truly exaggerated. The figures were exaggerated. It was made out to be totally sexual. She was enjoying being on the middle pages of the newspaper and what have you. And it was her claim to fame. Well, of course, on the Monday morning, I don't know what... I it was called the Vice Squad in those days. They raided. The bank obviously foreclosed immediately. It was all over the paper, and in fact, it was Dandy Kim behind it. Well, that caused another load of problems, and it went into receivership, and it was bought by the Gold Brothers.
0: Did what? How much did they pay for it? Was it a tenner or something?
1: Tenner, tenner.
0: Amazing.
1: They ended up giving him it was either ten grand or a thousand pounds after months of plaguing him to where do you get this made because they had no knowledge of this business at all. Obviously, the shop had closed down, so they decided they were going to go back to the brass roots of it with mail order and what have you. And there was all they, they used to phone him, and he, he said, I'm not giving you any more information, I've lost my business, thank you. Obviously, he never spoke to Anise again, he hated her after this. Right. You know, she ruined it all for 15 grand. So that was the end of that. He then took a fee to come and consult. Well, they argued the whole time, and there was a big fallout, and he walked away. And he still believed he was owed money. And he was always bitter about Leanne Summers story because you know, it's publicised. Jackie Gold's now what got kind of a company worth £750 million. When it's totally his concept. And there was he in a retirement home on the King's Road on a pension with nothing. And this, it festered. It definitely, I, mean, I used to sometimes say to him, okay, not again, I can't listen to it again. He was bitter about it. Understandably, I suppose.
0: And the legal battles went on for decades, almost at the end of his life, didn't they?
1: I think it finally killed him off, to be honest with you, because he litigated himself in the High Courts of Justice. Because all three of them, the two brothers and the sister, all three wrote their biographies, all of which his name came up in. So right. he sued. One book called him a liar, one book called him a, a robber. Another one went on about this nonsense about landing a helicopter in, in Hyde Park, Prince <laughs> Princess Margaret. He really thought he was going to go and have a swan song and get half a million, a million pounds out of it. I think the truth be known, I didn't put it in the book. I think it was somewhere, some that remains unknown, between five and 80 grand. Dom, at the end of the day, I put it the nearer the five grand. It was all a bit sad.
0: Right. Because he was a millionaire several times, wasn't he? And then, oh, yeah, and then bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was he officially bankrupt, or was he just on his uppers and he'd um, try and find some new scheme? I
1: don't think he ever officially went. I know a few companies went. I don't think he ever personally went bankrupt. No, I
0: don't. Okay. And the end of his days, like you say, and was it was it officially a retirement home or just a nice little flat he had in Chelsea?
1: It was just a nice little flat. I mean, he, he had an old girlfriend who'd married a guy in New York, and they had a place in Chelsea Harbour. So he lived there for a while. The husband found out in New York that the wife had lent him his flat. Well, that went down like a lead bloom. So Kensington and Chelsea had to go and sort something out for him. So he ended up Astor Court up in the King's Road. And there's a little bar over the road there, Antico or whatever, which you'd you'd see him just sitting there when he (coughs) got smaller and smaller as he got older, just drinking by himself. He was quite sad, really. I mean, he's still full of ideas, even that picture you probably saw with Golden Balls with the Beckham thing. I mean, oh, yeah.
0: I mean, <laughs> he must have been, what, 80 when he had this idea? Yes. So could you explain what this was? Because this is a bizarre thing that he actually went through with it, didn't he, in the end?
1: Well, two people backed it. He asked me to back it. I, I wouldn't back it. The idea was that um, the da Vinci drawings were going to be replaced with Beckham's head and the balls were going to be (laughs) gold-leafed. And every print he had wasn't good enough, because he was a perfectionist as well. It had to be right, or he didn't want it. Fair money went into this. I mean, like 50, 60 grand, just for a poster, which was ridiculous. He even got two trips to Japan out of it to try and market it. There's
0: a limited edition poster that had real gold leaf on the enlarged testes of... Yeah, you've got it, you've got it, ...of David Beckham... Who was superimposed onto the famous Leonardo da Vinci yes. legs and arms split picture? It's the, it's the it. weirdest concept I've ever come across, but it sounded like he made some money out of it. Uh,
1: no, that one did that wasn't Oh, he didn't win
0: Okay.
1: No, that wasn't a winner either.
0: <laughs> that was one of the ones that didn't work. I think there were about
1: 100 of them in a cardboard box sitting in Ask the Court, yeah. <laughs> no. Right, I'm going to pick no, one up. No, that didn't work.
0: Thank you, Nigel, for giving up your time to come on the show. I can't stress enough how much stuff about Kim's life we are unable to talk about. But Nigel's biography of Dandy Kim is available to read online and you'll find a link to it on the show notes. That's at SohoBytesPodcast.com Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. As I mentioned earlier, 1955's Value for Money is an unusual, if not unique, Soho film in that it's mostly set nowhere near Soho. The majority of the film is actually set in Yorkshire in a fictional town called Barfield, with the non-fictional town of Batley acting as a body double for the exterior location scenes. So, you ask, why is it a Soho film? Well, I admit it is tenuous, but it does just about qualify because our two lead characters, Ruthine, played by Diana Dawes, and Chaley, played by John Gregson, meet in Soho. They actually meet at a West End theatre that's loosely based on the windmill, while Chaley's down there in that there London on a lad's weekend.
1: A Football trip, cup final in London. Ah, and it's real value for money. Coach trip down, dinner at one of them slap-up hotels, and after the match, one of them reviews. Broaden your mind. There's a ticket going to begin for cash. How much? Five pounds. Five pounds? You must think I'm made of money. It's a real education, all them chorus girls in their scanties. Not to mention them fan dancers.
0: (laughs) The premise of Value for Money is similar to that of Rattle of a Simple Man a film we talked about back in episode five. A naive, simplistic man from up north becomes captivated by a glamorous London showgirl. The two key differences are that in Rattle of a Simple Man, pretty much all of the action does in fact take place in London rather than back up north. And in Value for Money, our naive northern protagonist, Chaley, unlike Percy in Rattle of a Simple Man, is secretly very, very rich. I'm going to leave most of the plot synopsis to my guest, Anna, but this clip in which Chaley takes Ruthine to a fancy London restaurant after meeting her at the theatre, illustrates the gulf between their two worlds.
1: What should we have, Chaley? There's nothing I can really except the prices.
2: Well, how about a little smoked salmon to start with? All
1: right, thick or clear.
2: Oh, no, don't have soup. The salmon's out of this world here.
1: So are the prices. Then after that, I think we'll have some done you. What's that? Well... Cotlets,
2: cutlets, and agneau is lamb.
1: Why the heck can't they say lamb chops and be done with it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> a d'agneau, bon pie,
0: petit pois, point d'asperge, no suite of corks.
1: Of course. What, no afters? A little camembert for monsieur. A camembert?
0: May I suggest a little brie? Aye, some of that. Value for Money is a good-natured comedy which plays on various stereotypes. The frugal Yorkshireman, the gold-digging showgirl, the known nonsense battle-axe women of Barfield, the loose, slightly untrustworthy foreign waiter, they're all in there, but it never feels malicious. The fact that up until 10 years ago, there was a pub in Batley called the Barfield Arms, named in honour of the fictional town in the film, shows there were no hard feelings. There are a few well-known actors who surprisingly pop up in the film playing smallish parts. Donald Pleasance plays Limpy, A long-serving member of Chaley's staff at his Shoddy and Mungo factory in Barfield. I didn't know what Shoddy and Mungo was either, but I do now. Details in the show notes if you want to find out. Molly Weir, she of Rent-A-Ghost and Something in the City, plays a perky young waitress. Joan Hickson, that's Miss Marple to you and me, has a turn as Chaley's no-nonsense housekeeper. And IMDB assures me that Leslie Ding Dong Phillips is in it too, but I've watched it three times now and haven't spotted him yet. John Gregson was fairly well known at this time, but became very famous a few years later, playing Commander Gideon in the ITV series Gideon's Way. And that name Chailey, isn't, as you might think, some peculiar traditional Yorkshire name, as he explains to Ruthine on their first date. It
1: was
2: very sweet of you to ask me here, Chailey. What a funny name.
1: Oh, I was trying to tell you, I'm a mistake. Hmm? Well, the registrar was a southerner. When he asked me Christian name, my dad said to make it Cherley. You mean Charlie? That's right, Cherley. Londoners
0: never could understand plain English. <laughs> we have the perfect guest in the perfect location to talk about value for money, Anna Cale, whose new biography of Dinodors has just been published. And she actually does live in that strange and distant place called Yorkshire. I was delighted to find out that they had the internet up there, so we were able to get together online a couple of weeks ago to talk about Dinodors and value for money. Thank you for coming on the show. I've asked you to come on because you've just written a new biography of Dinodors, which is called...
2: It's called The Real Dynodores. Available from all good bookshops and some dodgy ones as well. So, yeah, it's out there in the wild. I wrote it last year in lockdown. So, yeah, it's amazing that it's finally out and I can um, I can talk about it and share it with people.
0: How long did it take to write?
2: Oh, goodness. So including research and, and reading and that phase of it, it was about a year, I would say. So I started um, the, the prep for it in the end of 2019. And just as lockdown happened, I was just about to start doing some research visits and bits and pieces to kind of bolster that side of it and they all had to be abandoned. But I am eternally grateful to, for example, the, the National Library of Australia, whose um, entire collection is online, and I was able to access all sorts of bits of information because they're a big fan of her in Australia, um, so there, there was lots of stuff, particularly from the 50s. So, yeah, it was kind of finding alternative sources and, and ways of concluding that research was um, was challenging.
0: And how long have you been thinking about writing about
2: But I've only been writing properly for a couple of years I came late to um, having the confidence to put myself out there as a writer about film and I wasn't planning to write a book so quickly but it just kind of came the opportunity came up and I had to grab it so Diana Dawes is someone who I've loved as, as as an actor and discovered through the years I have quite a an interest in kind of mid-20th century British film so obviously she features largely in that in that period in British cinema. And I absolutely loved writing the book. She's such a great person to to read about and to write about, uh, a fascinating person with a great story. And it's been wonderful to kind of try and capture that and bring that to people's attention.
0: So we're talking about Value for Money, which is it's kind of a Soho film. It's a tenuously a Soho film. And there are one or two scenes quite close to Soho. I think you can argue that the theatre that Diana is appearing in, or Ruthine is appearing in, is The Windmill. Is that that? would that be fair to say yeah
2: it must be I, I can't think of you know what else it would be I think it
0: is yeah and one of um one of the stock Yorkshireman characters says we'll see all lasses in scanties uh which <laughs> we think uh, that's probably the windmill but it's mostly set in Yorkshire or it's mostly mostly set in Yorkshire and as I talk to you now you're not far from barfield slash batley
2: I'm not no, and um I have quite a personal connection to to batley um uh, my husband's from batley so when uh, when we met that's where he was living um uh, so I know batley very well, as you say it stood in for for barfield, but it's absolutely barfield absolutely is batley it's anyone who knows that town will know it represents the the town and its spirit very well um you know from obviously the the way they use the the centre of the town and the buildings and, you know, the kind of the capturing that spirit of those small civic centres that you get in Yorkshire towns around here. You know, Shoddy and Mungo is, is a big thing in that area. And Batley is very proud of its history in, in the cloth trade. Batley really embraced standing in for Barfield when when the, the film was made, the location shooting around the town. Everyone came out to see Diana Dawes and, you know, obviously, you know, to see her. And the, the scenes where there are crowds of people when she arrives in the town, that actually was the case when she was in the town. You know, the real people kind of come into to see this this beautiful film star come into their town to, to film.
0: Because the first time she made a film in Yorkshire was a few years before and she wouldn't have been as major a star in those days, would she?
2: No, she she filmed um, A Boy, a Girl and a Bike um, in the Yorkshire Dales. She 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 loved making that film. You know, it was a first location shoot. Quite a, like as you say, early on in her career, um, she was a young star playing the kind of the uh, not quite the lead. You know, she was kind of fourth or fifth or sixth on the bill, and the, you know, she kind of gave her usual turn as the the cheeky young thing out to cause trouble. But yeah, Boy or Girl on the Bike was her first experience for Yorkshire, and very um, a great experience for her, I think, as as an actor.
0: I really like Boy or Girl on the Bike. I, I reviewed it on the Talking Pictures TV podcast. I think it was episode oh, one, actually. Yeah, I really like it. It's a lovely film, and I think she's It's a really lovely good, film, yeah yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. she's great. Yeah.
0: I also really like her in Oliver Twist. Yes, and you can see little hints of the you know naughty persona thing that she developed. Anyway, give me a quick summary of the plot of Valley for Money
2: pretty easy. I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, So Jamie Broadbent (laughs) is um, somehow founding himself inheriting his dad's shoddy business when his father dies. And yeah, he inherits his fortune of 62,000 pounds or whatever it was and his business and Chailey is seemingly a young man although he looks about 53 on the in the film he looks john gregson is not um very youthful he always seemed to be the same age in every film to me um but yeah, yeah. so john gregson plays Chailey, who is a typical yorkshireman let's say or the typical stereotype of a yorkshireman who is very frugal with his money doesn't want to spend any money doesn't want to do anything risky he's not a risk taker his girlfriend Ethel, his long suffering girlfriend, wants him to maybe kind of take a few more risks. He's not a catch, if you ask me.
0: Absolutely not a catch. Oh my word. Yeah. Ethel is a woman with no self-pride at all.
2: She's a terrible character. I I shouted at the screen a few times watching <laughs> Ethel. You know, she made it all the way to the Yorkshire Post as a reporter. She yeah. should have stayed in Leeds. Yeah. But yet she comes back to, to Barfield, to the local paper, just to capture the heart of Chailey. Who honestly is not worth it man and not you know, for his money for his either
0: I mean that that would be the main oh. that would be worth it if it was for the money because sixty two grand is a good few million now, yeah, she could have lived in upper barfield <laughs>
2: yeah, could have bought a barfield um he's he's not um a cash, but either is she to be honest, you know she's pretty weedy as a character. I don't like her very much to be honest, and no. um I think she should just get a grip, but <laughs> <laughs> He decides to go to London on a um, a football supporters coach trip. I don't quite know what team it'd be, but yeah, all the men of the town are going down to London on a coach, which is very familiar to people up here. You know, that's what you do. You go down to London for supper and a show or for football or whatever on, on a coach. That's what that's what a lot of people did at the time still do, I think. Um, you know, yeah. make make a kind of real weekend of it. And yeah, he's invited down, he eventually decides to go, even though it costs, you know, some money to, to for the ticket he decides Five to go. Pounds. I know, God. When he's there he 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 um they go to a review show which is the i guess the 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 connection with the the dubious connection to soho and um, they go to a review bar to watch the ladies you know and kind of yeah it's an interesting few scenes where they kind of experience these women on the stage and there's a there's a dance number a song and dana Dawes appears as part of this song which is really quite the lyrics of that the, the song about you know dollies for the boys or you know yeah. whatever and they're all kind of there on the stage as as these dolls that the men are allowed to kind of take home with them it's really quite shocking i think to to modern eyes but you know he's there travel broadens the mind apparently chaley he's told from from one of his uh, friends on the coach um, and it certainly does because he uh, decides he suddenly falls in love with with one of the performers by Diana Dawes. And you would absolutely just fall in love with her. She's, she's gorgeous. And yeah, he decides he, he he wants to spend time with her, takes her out for dinner in a hilarious scene in a, in a, in a restaurant. You, you can imagine the rest of the plot. You know, she she finds out he's got a bit of money. Um, he doesn't want to spend any of that money, but she uh, she's determined to kind of try and um, get him to spend it on her. He goes back to... Yorkshire and to Ethel it's that kind of the to and fro in between you know he's stuck between these two women wet Ethel and um, gorgeous exotic Diana um, who eventually comes to the town in a, in a dubious kind of way to kind of open a, a local centre
0: and Chaley's blatantly saying to to Ethel oh she's so lovely wants to bring her up here to her face and she takes it.
2: Oh, Honestly, Ethel, mate, just sort it out. There's a lovely scene later on when Dana Doe's character Ruthine does come to the town. There's a great scene in a hotel room where her and Ethel get drunk together. And I love that scene. You know, they talk about the situation and form this unlikely alliance, which um, kind of saves the day and everyone gets their man in the end.
0: When we first see Dianador, she's dressed in a wedding dress, and she finishes the film in a wedding dress as well.
2: She does, yeah, yeah, because every woman's dream is to get married. That's all you want in life. Yeah, they both end up with um, the man of their dreams um, in the end. Ethel gets her man, and um, Dianador's character Ruthie gets her man as well in a surprising twist.
0: Yeah, that surprising twist is a bit weird as well. It's a bit like the, the, the West End show because she... Chaley says, well, I don't want to marry her. You marry her. And he says, all right, I will. And Ruthing yeah. just accepts it.
2: Like she's some sort of play thing that isn't a real person. Yeah, it's absolutely shocking, really.
0: It's interesting that Batley has taken the film to its heart, as you described, because some of the representations are a bit ropey. But I mean, I suppose that was of its time, wasn't it? The North was always kind of either comical or depressed when compared to sophisticated metropolitan London where they have lamb chops in French.
2: Yeah, it's it's a strange it's it's a comical portrayal, um, but it's quite a sympathetic portrayal as well. I love the feeling of town pride, which kind of comes across from from you know the the lord yeah. mayor and the you know Chaley. He decides to become a town councillor, you know, to be a man of influence. You know, he wants to do be someone. You know, being someone is is staying in your town and doing something there. It's not going off and, and doing something different. You know, you you stay and you make something of yourself there, and that kind of. Feeling that kind of comes across from the film, and yeah, there, there's these stereotypes, but there's a thing. I think there's a um, there's a nice. I like this film. I think it's really sweet, and d- despite its kind of portrayals of, of Yorkshire, it also highlights some of the the good things as well. And I think it's it's quite a sweet portrayal. But yeah, that feeling of um, the North being this kind of place that you know is completely separate. You know, from 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 London, big London and kind of going to London being a big thing. But that's still the case, you know, for a lot of people. They don't go to London, you know. It's um it's a big thing to do. But yeah, I, uh, I, I've got a real soft spot for this film.
0: So I want to talk about Diana a bit. When I started reading the book, I kind of knew that she had this life that was lived in the tabloids to a certain extent. I, I mean, I remember seeing her on various chat shows talking about her weight loss and weight gain and all that kind of stuff. And she was constantly on the front page of the tabloids. And what sort of what stage was she at in her tumultuous private life when this film was made? I mean, she was a, she was already a star, wasn't she? And was she married by this stage?
2: She was. So yes, yeah, she was already a star. I mean, she um, she started her screen career in 1946 with a small role. She was 15 at the time, um, which is just amazing. She wasn't playing 15; she was playing slightly older. Her performance in that film, which is "The Shop at Sly Corner." was you know brief but impactful you know she she lit up the screen from that very first performance uh, but she was a studio contract artist um in 1955 she um, i think was still with rank and the british film industry at that time that's what it was you know it was this carousel of the same people in the same films you know the different studios kind of intermingling and lending out their actors to, to various productions so you get the same people you get john gregson you get Diana Dawes even the director of value for money Ken Anakin you know he'd worked with Diana several times I think by the time she made this film which came out in 1955 she'd made I think 25 films by that point so if you think she started her career in 46 this is only 55 you know that's a huge amount of work that she did she was a real you know she really worked really hard um you know she did a lot of uh, stuff in her early career a lot of different performances albeit a lot of them very similar in their nature. You know, these films were... there's there's a commonality particularly in the performances that she gives or the characters she plays you know she she says herself a lot you know when you read about her her own thoughts on her career she knew that she was being typecast even early on you know even in 1955 she knew she was typecast as the bad girl or the femme fatale type and you know that continues through the 50s um, and beyond Um, yeah she was absolutely at her kind of prime in terms of her studio uh, film output in, in 1955 and I think in 1955 alone I think she had six films come out um you know which is it which is pretty significant you know for for, for an actor you know kind of the, the star um in those films and i think she was pretty much kind of top of the bill in most of them there were others that were kind of um supporting cast but largely she, she was she was the star and she was very popular you know she um, she was gaining a lot of attention um you mentioned obviously you know her personal life and the the roller coaster that that was she was married at this time to uh, Dennis Hamilton, who she married in 1951 when she was 19. And he had quite a big influence on her career, largely seen as kind of a negative influence on her in her personal life and the way that he took control of her career and her career direction and the way that she presented herself outside of her screen role so the way she dealt with uh, publicity the press that side of things he very much took the lead on that and kind of took it in a direction which um, she wasn't necessarily comfortable with but that she wasn't able to kind of stop and um it certainly got her recognition you know it certainly got her attention in the press and in, with the public but not always for the right reasons but he was you know he he branded himself as her Gali. you know he wanted to be seen as the, this guy who was kind of you know he he took control of her career I think in order to kind of present himself in a certain way and um, he was not a nice man um, and it was
0: not a good marriage. Is he the reason she didn't kind of push back against his bad girl femme fatale thing? I mean was she not able to say I don't want to do that role I want to do something that's slightly more challenging?
2: To be honest the the opportunities weren't there you know for, for actors like Diana does at that time in Britain. There are I think there are multiple influences. In, in the mix there because, yes, there's him and the way he persuaded her to take certain roles, but actually the other roles weren't really there. You know, for, for a woman like Diana the, as an actor, there weren't really those opportunities in Britain. What she mm. wanted to do, she wanted to go to Hollywood. You know, she the next step for her after building her career in Britain was to go to Hollywood, and after Yield to the Night, you know, she had the opportunity to go there. And get a, you know she she got a contract to um to to make a few pictures of that with RKO I think it was, it didn't work out well
0: largely because of Mr Hamilton.
2: Yeah, he did not make things easy for her out there.
0: Could you talk about the incident that made her? be seen in a less favourable light by the American public. Uh,
2: yeah, so she she went to Hollywood, you know, she had the chance to possibly be a contract artist out there um, this was her big chance, you know, she, it's what she wanted. She saw herself as, as, a, as a star, she wanted to be a star. This was what she was kind of working towards, was, you know, going to Hollywood and making a name for herself out there Getting the roles that she she felt she she wanted, you know, in the bigger pictures, um, with the, the glamour that should come along with 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 being a film star, rather than being a film star in Britain, which you know w- was a different prospect. And she went out there, she rented a house in the Hollywood Hills, you know, she took Dennis Hamilton with her, obviously as her husband and her, you know, Svengali. She had a big party um, at the the place they were staying, you know, everyone was invited, you know, you had all your gossip columnists there and have newspaper people and stars and kind of various people. And halfway through the, the, this party, there was an incident where a photographer pushed her and Hamilton and a couple of other people into a swimming pool.
0: Was this intentionally?
2: It's hard to say. The reporting of it at the time was a bit mixed. It, it was a playful, a playful accident. I don't know. The uh, The photographer, you know, kind of paparazzi photographer, maybe thought he might capture a, a, a funny moment, let's say. Dennis Hamilton reacted very badly and he punched the photographer. And obviously that was reported everywhere, all over the papers, all over the press over there. And it, it really... Affected Diana's ability to kind of have that kind of positive presence over there as as a Hollywood star. She was tainted by Hamilton's violent reaction. He was asked to go home by the studio bosses, and and yeah, it was never the same again for her. She she stayed there and she she did do a couple of films, but yeah, she um, it was she, it was it it just ruined things for her because she was tainted by Hamilton's image.
0: It wasn't. You say he punched the photographer. I think he punched him quite a lot, didn't he? I read one account where it seems like it was a bit of an onslaught.
2: Accounts vary of it. But yeah, he was he was a, he was a violent man, you know, he was violent towards Diana as well. You know, there are incidents, you know, that she recalls and, and tells in her own... She released two autobiographies in her time and yeah, she, she does recount those incidents of his violent possessive behaviour. This was not something potentially unexpected, I guess, from from someone like Hamilton, you know, it was just done in the glare of the public eye in America with everybody present. And it was um, a real sea change in terms of her career, that Hollywood career came crashing down, essentially. And after a few months, you know, she finished filming and kind of came home and, and that was it, you know, she came home to the same types of films she'd been doing previously. You know, she had to revert back to type and that, that the dreams of, of a Hollywood career were were in tatters around her.
0: So when she went to Hollywood, this was after, like I say, it was after Yield to the Night, which is the film that everybody talks about as being her greatest achievement as a film. And I have to agree. I mean, I've seen maybe seven or eight Diana films, maybe more, and it's the one that utterly stands out. It's a fantastic film. And it feels like she sh- that should have been a springboard to better films you know a, a, a higher caliber of films than It didn't seem to happen is, is this partly the hollywood incident with hamilton and partly just hamilton's influence generally because she could act you know that was clear from that film and what do you put it down to, that she didn't then have that stellar career after that film?
2: Yeah, I think her career, you know, she she was um, plagued by bad decisions and bad fortune a lot of the time. Yield to the Night was an amazing film. It was a, a controversial film. You know, it, it was um, J. Lee Thompson, the director, he wanted to do something which really had an impact and, you know, Diana Dawes was absolutely mesmerising in that performance. Really, obviously, to everybody else, it seemed unusual to cast her in that film, but she absolutely just played that part so well. It went to Cannes, you know, it was nominated for, for prizes in Cannes. She she went to the Cannes Film Festival, you know, to promote the film as well. She was absolutely should have been riding on the crest of a wave then. You know, she came back um and expected the phone to to be ringing off the hook, but it didn't. And she went to Hollywood. That didn't work out. Um and yeah, it should have been the start of something, you know, her performance in that film alone, you know, should have should have led to so many great opportunities on the, on the acting front as you say she was a great actor you know i'm 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 always kind of saying to people you know she was a great actor she was a beautiful woman she was a star but she was a great actor and she it should have led to those really interesting roles then those roles kind of came later on in her career when she was able to shed the glamorous image a little bit she was able to take on those interesting more meaty character roles later in her career which I think people a lot of people don't realize you know she continued working all the way through the you know through to the early 80s and gave some really fascinating performances when she was allowed to and I think there was this image built around her caused by Hamilton caused by those Poor uh, choices in terms of her career. She was influenced by by Hamilton and making those bets. She needed to earn the money. He had nothing, you know. She she was the money maker in the relationship, as she was in all of her marriages. She always had to keep working, and she always did. She always kept working, but it wasn't always what she wanted to do. It was only maybe later on in her career when she was able to relax a little bit and do some more interesting stuff. But she died very young. She was fifty two when she died. She died in eighty four. And it, I, I do wonder what she could have gone on to do, you know, beyond then as a character actor, you know, she could have done some wonderful stuff. She she was already showing, you know, she really had um, such um, acting ability and, and real kind of nuance within those performances later on. You know, she could have gone on to do wonderful things. She should have been given that opportunity early in her career. But actually, in Britain, there were no opportunities like that. You know, the Hollywood thing didn't work out. So what were her choices? You know, as, as an actor in Britain in the 50s and 60s, there really wasn't much to choose from. Um, so she made the best of a bad lot, really, I think.
0: The trip to Cannes for Yields of the Night is this when she turned up in a mink bikini or is this a different
2: no that was Venice that was the Venice Film Festival it was around the same period you know it was again the the mink bikini thing is a great demonstration of the Hamilton effect I think on her career although she claims that the mink bikini was her idea not his but yeah she turned up in this mink bikini all eyes were upon her obviously it was it was things like tricks like that that her and Hamilton or Hamilton's influence kept her doing you know kept keep her in the public eye she was a brand you know she became a brand and a commodity which is very unusual in those times she she was the first person to really to do that you know to kind of brand herself and kind of promote herself in in a certain way using the press in in a way yeah it was um very unusual at the time it was the first kind of example of of doing that she used the press when she needed the money she you know she she notoriously sold was the first person to sell a story to sunday tabloids her her life story was serialized in the news of the world over several sundays and scandalized society and, and the country and was talked about in parliament and you know all sorts she yeah she had an interesting relationship i think with herself as a brand knowing that she needed to do something to keep herself in the public eye but actually also wanting to have a, a good meaty successful acting career it's the theme that always comes up within her story is that kind of battle between the two forces you know wanting to be a good actor wanting to have those opportunities but equally needing to make money and um keep going
0: and supporting these dissolute husbands who were, who were losers
2: yeah even a second husband wasn't you know much Better, He was different, you know, he wasn't Dennis Hamilton, Um, Richard Dawson was her second husband, but he was um, a drain on her differently, I guess, you know, she found love with her, a deep love and affection with her third husband, um, Alan Lake, later in life, but even then there were problems, you know, he had his own personal issues, and yeah, again, she was carrying... You know these relationships. She was the one at earning. She was the one out there. This keeps reoccurring as a theme. You know, she's the one who has to keep going, and that mean, if that means taking, you know, tours to working men's clubs or doing cabaret instead of an interesting play or an interesting screen role, then that's what she did.
0: Thank you, Anna, for coming on the show. And I should warn you that when I was searching for Anna's book on Amazon, Jeff Bezos personally intervened and kept changing my search term from Anna Kale. Anna Cake. Don't let Jeff have his fun. Just go to the show notes to find a link from where you can purchase The Real Dinodores by Anna Kale, bypassing that pesky Bezos. And thanks again to Nigel Hamilton Walker for talking about his pal Kim. The sex manual we talked about that Kim wrote under the pseudonym of Terence Hendrickson was called Variations on a Sexual Theme, and at the time of recording there is at least one second-hand copy available to buy online. You can find links to that to Nigel's book, to Anna's book, to various bits and pieces about the guests, the film, and of course, about dinosaurs and Dandy Kim at the usual place, SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you've enjoyed the programme, I'd be very grateful if you could leave a nice review. It's very straightforward. You just have to go to RateThisPodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. There's no prizes time, I'm afraid, but just do it out of the goodness of your heart. And please feel free to get in touch with the show with your comments and suggestions via Twitter. We're on at Soho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bytes is produced by me, Dom Delagi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. That's all from me. Until next time, TTFN.